Welcome to the first episode of Bucking the Trek. I have the pleasure on this episode of bringing you on a journey, an archaeology, if you would like, of the life and times thus far of Zoe Whitley. Zoe Whitley is the first guest that I've chosen out of the many trend buckets within the visual arts because of the sheer impact her career has brought on the industry with shows like Silver Nation and at the Tate, which then toured around America and other institutions, with her positions at Tate, VNA, and Southbank, Haywood Gallery. Additionally, having taken on the position of curator of the 2019 Venice Viennale for the British Pavilion, featuring the artist Kathy Wilkes. Zoe's episode is entitled Dismantling the Master's House with the Master's Tools for a Reason. You shall discover. Why is it important to me that I speak to Zoe? Zoe Whitley has an amazing story to tell, a humble story to tell, but one with immense success attached. I wanted to share in her story, her example, how we could all, in our own ways, buck the trend differently. Enjoy. So Zoe, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience in whatever way you're comfortable? Sure. Well, thank you for having me, Eduardo. My name is Zoe Whitley, and I am director of Chisholm Hale Gallery in East London. We are a nonprofit making space that works with artists from every stage of their realizing a new body of work from concept to the final exhibition. So we commission new works, which is a really exciting thing to be doing. So this is what you're doing now, but the whole point of Bucking the Trend is almost like an archaeology of your progress in order to kind of inspire young creatives and curators like myself who are trying to find their way and people who are interested in your story. So we're going to take it from the beginning. Yeah, let's dig in. Where did you go to school? What was your sort of, tell me about your education. Tell me stories about your education, things that come to mind on that level. Okay, well, I come from an African-American family that's based in the Washington, D.C. area. So when I was first growing up, my mom and I lived in a house with my maternal grandmother and grandfather and my aunt. And my grandparents were both educators. My grandmother was a home economics teacher. And my grandfather was an English teacher, then vice principal in a high school, and eventually an English professor at Savannah State University in Georgia. And I used to spend my summers there as a kid. I went to public school, so in the, in the American sense, so state school, where they had a very an interesting and kind of innovative for the early 80s program that was a language immersion program. And they had a half day Spanish program and a all day, you know, from 9am to 3pm French program. And when my mom called to inquire about the half day Spanish, she was asked a little bit of information about me. So, you know, me being a little black girl. And they said like, okay, well, we have too many girls. We're oversubscribed for girls Mm -hmm. in the Spanish 
and we've got enough black children. So what about French program? (laughs) So my mother was like, well, all day seems like a lot, but let's go with it. So I went to French school my whole life as a result of that, or certainly for all of elementary or primary school, and then also for part of secondary school. And I think that that had a very big impact on me in terms of, I guess, what we think of as being a self-starter because, you know, I literally had to translate my homework for my family. You know, a lot of it, no one else in my family spoke French. So they always had this sense of this world being a bigger place and of wanting to create as many possibilities for me as possible. And so I think that there's something about that sense of there's always more than what I know, or than what we know that is out there to be discovered that I try and bring to my work now. Yeah, my family is very creative, but I wouldn't say, you know, not in a in the conventional sense where anybody had an artist studio or something like that. I was fortunate that my grandparents were retired for most of my life, um, certainly my grandmother. So she was part of a really incredibly inspiring organization called NAFAD, the National Association of Fashion and Accessories Designers, which was an African-American women's organization headquartered in Washington, D.C. Mayani Elsie was the president for a while, which is pretty cool. And there's a display about NAFAD in the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American Heritage and Culture. So that's pretty exciting. But my grandmother and my great aunts spent all their spare time sewing and working toward these national fashion shows and presenting you know, original fashions that they designed. So there was always something being made in the house. There was always a sense of like, well, we can make this ourselves or we can put our own spin on something. So I remember growing up, like watching the first TLC videos and Left Eye had on a hat that I wanted. And I had seen something kind of similar in a store up the street. And my grandmother was like, well, we can make that. And, you know, ungrateful kid. I was like, no, I want to buy it. I want to buy that one. I didn't want to make it, but I wish I had made that hat with my grandmother because it probably would have been cooler. But, you know, we'd make quilts in the summer or we'd come up with various sewing projects. So I was always making things. And my mother took me to museums. Again, I think being born and raised in a city where world-class art is free um, through the Smithsonian Institution and some of the other museums made a big impact because it meant that I didn't have to come from a family of collectors or to have major works of art in my home to feel like that was something that was within reach or something that I could also access. And I know that all of us come to art in many different ways. So it's fascinating to hear about people who grew up surrounded by it or whose parents are artists. But, you know, because we all find our own way, I think it's also important to hear that that might not be everybody's story, but there's still a place for us in it. And then by the time I was in high school, I was making a lot of art. And by that point, I was in a a private high school that had a really unusual program so that I was able to study art history alongside doing studio art. So while we were learning about World War II, we were also learning about the Degenerate Art Show. And I think that kind of, I don't know, ignited some kind of spark. So I was as interested in 
making art as I was in learning about other people who made it. And then at some point, art history kind of surpassed that. But also when I was a teenager, I used to teach art to little kids as part of a summer school program that a woman named Janet Immerman ran out of the kind of back room of her home. It's called the Art Club. And so ceramics, but also drawing and painting. And that was incredibly fun. And I still like talking to younger kids about art and art making. And I think that a lot of times those concepts we think might be really obscure, like abstraction or something like that, children are able to absorb and implement really easily because, you know, they don't think about it too much. They just make it and do it or say, well, I don't want to do that. I want to do my own thing. And at art club, the only rule was there were no have-tos. So that was really fun. And I definitely think that some of those formative things, making clothes with my grandmother, teaching art and art club have informed certainly some of the side projects. So things that I've done, like the children's book at Tate about Frank Bowling. So it's called Meet the Artist, Frank Bowling. But um, you're introduced to Frank's techniques through a range of art activities. And then there's another one coming out in March. It's Meet the Artist, Sophie Teuber Art with Tate and MoMA. So I think, yeah, there's a lot to be gained from talking about art through artist eyes and through kind of making and doing as a way of learning. And that that kind of focus on process and what the artist is doing is something that's always been interesting to me. Amazing. Just picking up on some of those strands that you brought out in a very generous introduction to your early life. So the nature of the bigger space, the idea of you being in a world that wasn't just America is quite an interesting concept as a, as a discussion topic all on its own, which we'll get to. And also there's the real academic and artistic joy songs and kind of like the joining of those two aspects in your life that has been really kind of like foundational to you. I suppose my question is, so you've explained that you've had the opportunity during all of your life to be exposed to art in a different way. But when did you feel that you were going to go for it as a career rather than just as an academic subject that enriched your life? Yeah, I don't know. There's probably different... I don't know that there was one aha moment. By the time my family moved to Los Angeles, I do remember seeing David A. Bailey's Rhapsodies in Black, um, the Harlem Renaissance exhibition at the LA County Museum of Art. And at that time, I had no conception of exhibition touring, either nationally or internationally. So it was just a show that existed in LA that I was able to see. And I remember asking my mom and my stepdad, you know, so many questions about like the mechanics of it. I think I was really interested in like, who's written these labels, you know, who decides what artworks get on the walls, you know, who picks even whether we're going to turn left or right to see the next thing so that we're exposed to this story that's unfolding. And that was really interesting to me. By the time I went to uni at 17, a friend of mine says she remembers me saying that I wanted to work in an art museum, but I don't myself remember saying that at the time. So I have that in my head now 
because I remember her saying that back to me. So I think it probably happened at some point during my university years, as much as my family wanted me to be um, happy. I think like a lot of people who, who have this story of coming from, I guess, more modest economic means. And, you know, as we sometimes there are jokes about the, the accepted careers that, you know, Black families may want someone to have, you know, out of love and for want of some stability and a kind of well-trodden path for what success might be. I'd initially thought that I'd study economics or or law. And I think that was the kind of thing my mom was saying, like, you know, you'd make a great diplomat or you could be a lawyer and then maybe you can specialize in some kind of law that allows you to, to support artists and maybe you could become a judge. But, you know, there wasn't this sense of, you know, art history necessarily being the stable ground upon which to build like the foundations of my career. But I... I loved it ever since high school, like I said, because I was able to do art history in high school. And then in my final year of high school, did what in America is called AP, so Advanced Placement Art History. And then art history classes at uni were always my favorites. And I ended up being selected for what's now called the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship Program. At the time, it was just the Mellon minority undergraduate fellowship program. And it's a national program that professors are able to identify students who, you know, might go on to, you know, study for a PhD or to have careers in academic fields where people of color are underrepresented, but who may otherwise then, you know, be looking to go into to law or medicine or, or business because, you know, certainly there are fewer opportunities for paid summer work if you want to, you know, shadow your philosophy professor or something like that. So I got a letter, which was really exciting, saying that basically there's money attached to this fellowship to help kind of keep your passion for your subject going, and then to potentially allow you to then develop that expertise through summer work experience that's relevant to that that humanities area, you know, whether that's art history or, as I said, philosophy or some of these other subjects that, you know, maybe wouldn't seem like the conventional career choices for certainly if you were coming from uh, a lower socioeconomic background or maybe if you were kind of first or second generation going to university. So in, in my family, there was a high level of educational attainment, but maybe not that kind of the financial push behind it. So I think there's that sense of thinking about where are you going to find career stability? And none of us necessarily had in mind some of the the art historians who were able to really shine a bright light on the work that, you know, I'd want to continue doing, you know, someone like David Driscoll or others. And I think that came with time, but I don't think that we were necessarily thinking that that's something that that everybody can do. You know, there's sometimes exceptions that prove the rule, but both through the, the Mellon Fellowship and also through a Getty internship 
I was able to work at the LA County Museum of Art um, for a summer that would have been in 1999, I think. And I just loved working there. It was really, really eye-opening. And I worked with some incredibly generous curators, one of whom is still there and runs the Department of Costume and Textile, Sharon Takeda, and another who's now curator emerita, um, Kay Spilker. And I think their generosity and their showing me that it was possible to do this work was probably the point when I thought like, wow, I would really love to to figure out how to do this kind of work or to, to work in museums. I wasn't even thinking specifically about making exhibitions, but just, you know, looking after collections and working behind the scenes in museums. It was really, really exciting to me. Thank you for that. So we've come from learning to speak French, being through the kind of school system and negotiating tensions between wanting to be happy and following your, your dreams and going forward into ideas of diplomacy and the law and how you can apply certain things like that versus a curatorial career, which is a looming issue in the horizon of this conversation. It might be an interesting time to ask you the question that I usually ask at the end, but the beginning of this feels a little bit more appropriate in your case. What do you think curation is? What does curation mean to you? I don't know. I guess I, I don't take a lot of time to think about it. I think because I work with living artists most of the time, or nearly all of the time, it's probably collaboration as much as, as anything. And at Chisholm, a lot of it too is a kind of critical friendship. So you have to be able to move beyond or not move beyond. I guess you're working within the parameters of believing in an artist and what they might be able to do, but then also pushing them to do more than they maybe have done before, more than they thought was possible. So part of what you're looking to do in every respect through fundraising, through talking about the art, through talking with the artist and asking questions about the artwork is all designed to tease out something that hadn't previously existed. But that's, you know, specifically within the context of commissioning new work. Working within an institutional context, it might be very specifically about asking questions about which stories have gotten told and is there a new way? You know, can you turn over one same object and tell a completely different story from the one that the institution has been telling? Or rather, is there a way to use your curiosity and enthusiasm to say, well, actually, these things are on display all of the time. This thing hasn't been. You know, what stories can be built or told around this thing that brings something new to light or even starts to begin to change how we understand what the institution is or what it can be or, you know, to, to question itself. So I think curating can be, yeah, it's really logistical. I think there's a lot of, of hard work involved to do it well. You know, there's, there's a lot of rigor and I think you have to be detail orientated, but then you also have to be able to zoom out and have some sense of this bigger picture as well. And so I think being able to to keep some kind of balance of both of those is important. It's also something that takes time. You know, it takes time to to know your history, to know the context you want to work in. If you're trying to change that context, to have 
some sense of how you want to do that. So for the 10 years that I worked at the Victoria and Albert Museum, for instance, you know, even the official histories of the V&A told one story about the V&A not collecting works of art or, you know, pieces of design and decorative art from Africa, that those things had been very quickly either deaccessioned or kind of re reallocated to neighboring museums, uh, like whether it's the Horniman Museum for certain musical artifacts or the Natural History Museum or others where certain things were thought to be more in the realm of anthropology and ethnography. But equally within collections across the board, there were all of these things that were, were evidence to the contrary. So there's an official history, but then the collections themselves are actually saying a different story. And so there were a number of colleagues that I was really excited to work with when I first started at the V&A. Um, Rosie Miles, Dinah Winch, Mary Guyatt, who were doing research into um, this type of work and working with a really inspirational woman named Ethne Nightingale, who used to run education and learning at the V&A and had a, a genuine commitment to making sure that the V&A was a welcoming place and that it was really expansive and inclusive in the way that it thought about how to create a welcome and how to bring in individuals who we might not otherwise think of as standard museum goers or a kind of monocultural kind of moneyed idea of who goes to the museum or is a member of the museum. And I think as a result of seeing the kind of work they were doing, it was really inspirational to also the kind of work I thought that I would want to be doing in relation to, you know, what you were talking about before, about this kind of archaeology, kind of uncovering these stories in the museum that, that are there and they just maybe hadn't been told or they're known to a few people. But if then through the Heritage Lottery Fund grant, then many more people are able to to amplify that story and to hear it, that it starts to change the perception of the museum. It starts to change who feels like they can see themselves in the displays and in the collection. It starts to change how discourse is developed around the collection. And I think that this notion of, of curating is definitely something that is active and evolving and it's changing. And I see it changing from a younger generation of curators too. And I'm really inspired by what they're doing and it's changing the way I think about curating. You know, I see what Meg Olney did in America during the first lockdown, you know, kind of getting artists together again, like in a, in a collaborative spirit to do something to raise money for Philadelphia bail bonds. And so not waiting for her institution, the ICA Philadelphia, to be able to do something at an institutional pace, which we know can often be like a snail's pace. And to say, I won't let that be an excuse. You know, there is scope for a form of, of artist activism and curating as a form of of solidarity. And actually, what's interesting to me about that is it's a very different way of framing what curating can be, even from how when I started, museums were still very much operating from a place of stating that they were neutral spaces or a neutral ground. And we now know the, the strong degree to which that isn't true and has never been true. But to see how individuals put that into practice and are constantly pushing forward 
what curating can be, I think is a really exciting thing. So there's definitely not one definition of it. Thank you for that very expansive answer. I'd just like to um, pick up on a few things that you mentioned in there. So I like the idea of how to curate a welcome. It's a very interesting idea because welcome in itself is something that within the art world, as you described in a very elliptical way, can at times be very illusory and not tangible, especially within the elements that you described, for example, the the academy and also the museum. What I really want to ask on those grounds is, how do you feel from when you started to where you are now, things have changed? And would you also be able to speak about your move from uh, the United States to the United Kingdom? Oh, wow. It's a big compound question and then lots of big questions within that. I guess we can break some of I them. I know, easy question. I'm from the U.S., to the UK specifically for my MA at the Royal College of Art. I did the RCA V&A course on history of design and was looking at representations of Blackness in Vogue magazine in the US, in the UK and France. So Vogue Paris. You know, as you kind of do any sort of research project, you know, it's not even clear sometimes when you're in the middle of it, what it is you're doing. And then when you, when you reach an end point or when there's, you know, a hard deadline and you have to be finished, there's a point when you can look back and be like, oh, that's what I was doing. So my, my MA thesis ended up effectively being about uh, representations of Blackness in the absence of Black models. So what notions or, you know, these kind of visual conceptions of Blackness were often projected onto uh, white models to create uh, a notion of the exotic. And Bell Hooks has some really powerful ways of framing that in, in a book called Black Looks. And one of them is this notion of putting the kind of beauty paradigm that we are already familiar with in a kind of exotic location. So all of a sudden it renders that thing we already knew exotic and we focus on it all the more. And so, yeah, it was it was an interesting thing to look at because I'd always been very excited about black fashion models, you know, going back to my great aunts and my grandmother, who I mentioned at the beginning, who were, you know, making clothing and buying really wonderful fashion magazines that were these kind of glossy windows onto these other worlds. But, you know, in the 1980s, there was still a really unapologetic stance from uh, fashion media that they couldn't put black models on the covers of fashion magazines because those issues didn't sell as well. And yet there was not really a ready acknowledgement that partly why they weren't selling as well is because the only issues of, say, a monthly periodical that they would put black models on were those issues that historically performed the least well. So, you know, maybe the January issue or the February issue, but not the, you know, not the big September issues or not right before the collections would come out. So there was no way of testing what that received knowledge was because it was basically a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, we do the same things, we get the same results and we use that to then kind of shore up our position or our kind of, you know, intractable and, you know, exclusive world that we've created. So I really enjoyed doing that. And it so happened that in the process of that, Leah Cabede became the first model to have Paris Vogue issue dedicated solely to her. So all of the fashion spreads 
um, were inspired by Leah. And so the Tusion Leah issue was, I think, a really was basically the the place where my my research ended. But it also coincided with Franca Sozzani releasing the Italian Vogue, African-American and African diaspora covers where all of the models on a series of covers of Italian Vogue were Black. So there was this moment and things were, were starting to pivot. And we, we see that change now. And it's really wonderful to have, you know, people like Edward Enninful now as editor-in-chief at Vogue UK and other major changes that we've seen on that scene in terms of who gets to have a say in terms of how images of, of who we are, or even those aspirational images of what we dream we want to be, who gets to have some authorship and agency over those. So yeah, I think that that to me felt like a very important thing. I can't remember the, the other parts of your question now. I'm sorry. Well, that's what I'm here for. I'd like to tease more out there. I think the questions sometimes begin serpentine and end up in a place that's more interesting than I started. But let's talk about the laws of media and also the idea of moments. For example, just a whole load of received wisdom in what you said, or was received wisdom that Black doesn't sell, that Black is a moment, that Black is a trend, that creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. And now I'm going to dovetail back to my original question, which is the following. How have you, or tell me stories, or tell me your sort of perceptions of how things have changed in the art world recently? Because you speak... I mean, even even since you invited me to take part in this podcast, there have been some major changes. You know, I think there were many more, I will be specific, Black women in leadership positions in the UK, which is a very exciting thing. You know, we have Deborah Smith as the director of uh, Arts Council Collection here in the UK. Melanie Keane is the director of Welcome Collection. Sepeke Angiyama is artistic director at Innova. Elvira Janganiose is the director at Showroom. I took up post in March of 2020 at Chisholm Sharna Jackson is artistic director in Sheffield and is also an award-winning children's book author. You know, I think that there are there are lots of individuals doing some very uh, strong work. Um, Sarah Wajid is now um, the co-director of a new space. Um, well, not a new space, but a new conception of Birmingham Museums. And that Birmingham Museums Trust, the fact that she's co-CEO is, I think, a really exciting development. And shows that actually, again, that kind of way of this is how, this is what leadership looks like, or this is how it has to be. The fact that it can exist in these other ways so that she's sharing the role of CEO with Zach Mensa, And they've come up with this collaborative way of presenting what leadership can be in future is, is very exciting. And just last week, uh, Kenitra Fletcher has been announced as new curator at the Smithsonian Museum, the National Museum of American Art. And uh, Naomi Beckwith, who is a phenomenal person, is about to take the helm as deputy director and chief curator at the Guggenheim. And, you know, that is, that's a, a landmark first. A very good friend of mine who I've 
collaborated with on a show called The Shadows Took Shape, an Afrofuturism exhibition that happened at the Studio Museum seven, gosh, like eight years ago now, is the vice president of education at LACMA. So I, you know, there's just, there's a lot of change in leadership positions. You know, Sandra Jackson Dumont um, recently took on a new role as the director of the Museum of Narrative Arts, also in California, having been at the Met, doing great work for many years, and has hired a really inspirational and incredibly diverse team that will be kind of shaping the mission and direction of that institution. So I think that there's been, you know, an absolutely huge amount of change. And those are literally only, you know, to name people I know personally. So, you know, the fact that there's so much more happening and, you know, that I don't know everybody personally, I think all of that is good news that it's kind of expanding and growing and that, yeah, the the landscape is a lot broader. And I think it it has to be. And I think one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, like that Ava DuVernay quote about like, it's not about, you know, using the, like knocking on the door, like asking to come in, you know, like we're going to build our own house. You know, I think that there are, there are so many people doing really interesting independent projects as well. I know that there are, there are multiple ways that we can achieve creating a vibrant cultural world that we want to see and be a part of, you know, whether that's some people choosing to make change from within or to to start brand new institutions. But equally, people are saying, like, actually, there are other ways that I can operate outside of the system and, and create this change. And we see that that is also forcing such a lot of change within institutions, because the only way that the erstwhile kind of cultural stalwarts will be able to survive is by adapting and rethinking who and what they are and, you know, really acknowledging that those exclusionary positions are are completely untenable. Thank you so much for that. I love the idea of building your own house. I'm not sure. I, I haven't quoted it properly. It's a really beautiful quote. It's one of the quotes in the Smithsonian National Museum of, you know, African-American culture and heritage, but I just can't think of, you know, what the exact quote is. Maybe I can find it. Okay. Whilst I go back to what we're talking about, then I think what you're sort of hinting at is intersectionality. And the idea of building your own house has a lot to do with understanding the positionings that people are coming from in time and space and how the system has become more capacious in accepting difference, especially racial difference. My real question is, if there is a real question to be had at this point, all of them are real questions. Give us times in which you felt like you might have needed to build your own house or have you always been the sort that wants to work within the institutional framework? I don't think it's either or. I think that's one of the things that's really important and that so many people are showing us that, you know, if someone says you have to work this way or you have to work this way, that, you know, it's actually, as I said, the younger generation that's showing me in so many different ways and say, well, why can't I do both? Or I can do a number of different things simultaneously. I guess in a real sense, because I was working within a museum context from the time I was, let's say, 23 until I was 33, it was being made redundant. It was a big change that was a kind of an external force that I think initially forced a different way of thinking about 
what might be possible for the work I do and what I put out in the world and not waiting for permission or, you know, finding ways to operate even without the stability I thought I had or that I thought I wanted. And so uh, Thelma Golden, who's always been an important champion and person in my life and for, you know, so many of us of, of my generation and not just as an idea, like as an actual supportive person with, you know, excellent advice at the end of the phone line was the person who provided the opportunity for me to pitch this idea for the Afrofuturism, what became the Shadows Took Shape with Naima um, when I was leaving what had been, you know, my steady job of 10 years. So, you know, that's, it's a really destabilizing time, but it kind of, yeah, makes you have to, to think differently, you know, like now what, how do I, how do I do something else? And I think that same spirit of, you know, oh, I've got this idea, like, let's, let's try and make it happen is something that then led to the, the first book that I wrote about a Ukrainian American printmaker um, who lived for most of his life in Wales, Paul Peter Peach. And yeah, I think that that sense of, of not waiting and of just finding ways to, to make things happen and to talk to other people, to share your ideas and to find ways to, to get things out into the world, I think is something that can happen in all ways. It can happen inside institutions, but it can also happen without them or can happen in ways that then have the institutions then coming to you saying, oh, I'd love to be a part of that. So it isn't, yeah, I think it's really important that the binary doesn't kind of freeze you into something. So, you know, even as I left DNA, it was also having conversations with, you know, again, incredibly generous, but also really pragmatic people like Lubaina Hamid. It's like, okay, well, you know, look at this opportunity to do a practice-based PhD with me at Preston. You know, I had never, I don't think of myself as an academic in that sense. And I hadn't had any kind of lifelong ambition to earn a PhD, but it was something that the opportunity that I could apply for it like a job presented itself. And it meant that there was a space to then think differently about what might be possible. And I think that that's something that's really important to sustain. And sometimes that is something that's easier to do outside of institutions than within them. You know, it takes an awful lot of fortitude within an institutional context to say, okay, I know we've always done things this way, but we, we really need to do something else. We need to do something different. And it's not, it can be quite thankless. You know, it's not always easy to get things done that way. But yeah, when you do, it's really rewarding. Okay. How's wisdom for any upcoming curators like your interlocutor today? Yeah, I think just, just keep at it. And I think that where you see something that doesn't exist, like a space where you can be, just to, to know that you're welcome and we're, we're waiting for you. You know, I think of wonderful things that Rabs, Imani, and, and so many others have created through the Babes Alternative Graduate Art Show. Um, you know, that there is something that was missing and there was an acknowledgement that actually there was a really fundamental consistency with which Black artists were leaving their art colleges, you know, not having felt supported, not having felt 
seen or understood. And then to create a space that is so uplifting and visible and exciting where what's meant to be that culminating moment of the art show could take on this form that was really bespoke for those individual artists. And then to say, like, look, look who's here. We're we're doing the work. Is it's so, so exciting. And you know, as I'd mentioned to all of them who'd been a part of that, you know, that there was something so exciting about taking my daughter to the first and then the second iteration and saying like, wow, this is the the art world that I, that I want to see. You guys aren't waiting for someone else to do it. You're making it happen. And that is incredibly exciting. So yeah, I think the, I know that times are, are really very hard, but it does feel like the time is now and there are people doing such interesting work and in ways that many of us never thought possible. So that's, that's really exciting to see. So I guess my, my pearl of wisdom is that, you know, I'm learning from you. So, so keep going. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Trendbuckers. Today we've discussed with Zoe Whitley her journey from America to the United Kingdom, her educational background, the way in which she encountered art, the way in which she sees herself. Most importantly, but not lastly, we conducted an archaeology. <laughs> We've excavated our live example of a trendbucker and have transcended that into one succinct narrative of the person that is Zoe Whitley. What really stood out to me is the fact that Zoe used her time to also call out other names to be added alongside her both in London and outside of London in her time on the show, which goes to show how many people there are actually out there bucking the trend and making things happen. If you enjoyed this conversation, please don't forget to subscribe on my Instagram page and also sign up to my mailing list. Additionally, share on your stories. Share, share, share. Thank you very much. Until next time.